Brilliant. Well, we're going to start, I'm going to start preaching now. Uh, we are going to be looking at the topic over the next couple of weeks of pursuing God. Okay, so I, uh, we were due to start our series in Corinthians today. And I was out praying a couple, a few weeks ago, just getting that kind of prepared and praying. And I felt God just sort of say, put a pause on it. Let's just stop for a couple of weeks and focus on what God's saying to us as a church. But also, I think, what God is doing in the church. Okay? And when I talk about the church in this context, I'm talking about the Western church. Because I realise that uh, different parts of the world and in different cultures are experiencing moves of God in different ways. But there is something happening, I think, in the Western church at this point in time, and I think it's a direct response to what happened during COVID. So there is a, a, a kind of new season that we are walking into, and I think we are walking into that as a church, but I think that's also true of lots of other churches as well. And so in January, we had our month of prayer, and during that month of prayer, we had lots of prophetic words from people in this church about this being a new season where we're called to seek God and we're called to dig deeper into God. These were the kind of the general gist of all the prophecies that we had together. And so first of all on that one, we want to hear from God together as a church. We want to be led by God. We want to be led by his spirit, not by our good ideas. And so if you feel that God's speaking to you, maybe you feel you've got a prophetic word, not just for an individual, but for the church, why not come and share it with one of the leaders that we might be able to help you weigh that and see whether that's something that we could bring to the church. So that's, I just wanted to say that as an aside. But anyway, we had these words about digging deeper into the presence of God. And I think it was Eddie responded to one of them. And he brought, uh, he brought this text from Hosea. Um, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. So righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. It's time to seek the Lord. That was, that was the, the, the gist of it. It's time to seek the Lord. A.W. Tozer um, wrote a, a, a couple of chapters in a book on this, on this text. And, and he says that what we need to do in our lives is, is plough the fallow field. So a fallow field is one that's just been left by a farmer that's not been cultivated for growth. And a fallow field doesn't really grow a lot. It's not very useful. And the danger is, is that our hearts can become fallow fields. And A.W. Tozer says that we need to plough our fields. We need to plough our fields that, that they might become areas of cultivation for the presence of God. Um, can I switch to the stick mic? Is that all right? Because I'm crackling. I'll go from here. Oh, that's better. Okay. So we need to be ploughing the fields of our hearts so that they are cultivated environments for God's presence. It's time to seek the Lord. But what does that look like in your life as an individual? Because that sounds a bit strange in some ways. How can you cultivate a heart that seeks after God? And what would it look like if you made your heart a dwelling place or an altar, if I was going to use that language, for the presence of God? And what's an altar, you might say? Well, an altar in the Old Testament was a place that was built by humans to meet with God. It was a place that, that mankind, that humans, could encounter the living gods. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. But then when we get to the New Testament, and, and on an altar there was always a sacrifice, okay? And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice. 
He becomes the perfect sacrifice so that you and I might always have an open relationship with God. We no longer need to go to an altar in order to meet with God. We can just close the door of our room and pray, Our Father, we now have access to the living God. But Jesus also does something else when he comes to inaugurate that new relationship with God. Our lives become living temples for God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And then he goes on to say, honour God with your bodies. So you've become a temple for the Holy Spirit or an altar, a meeting place for God and humans is now in you. You've become an altar to the living God. So here's the thing. If my body is a temple and my heart as an individual is an altar, I don't just want a flicker of God's presence in my life. I want a roaring flame. I want to walk into a room and I want to change the atmosphere in the room because I'm walking in with the presence of God in me. That's what I want. And so today we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 to 39. It's a long story, but I just want to get into this with you this morning. What does it look like to build an altar to the presence of God in your heart? What does that look like? So we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 to 39. You might want to find that, and I'll read it in a second. But this story that I'm about to read you, This story that I'm about to read you, what happens before this story is that this is a troubled time in Israel's history. So there's a king on the throne called Ahab, and he's not a good guy. In fact, actually, it says that what he does isn't just bad in the eyes of God, it's detestable in the eyes of God. And he hooks up with this woman called Jezebel, and what they do is they go through Israel killing all of God's messengers, the the prophets. And they, they start to worship Baal. Now, Baal was the god of thunder and rain. And they start to worship Asherah. She was the goddess of fertility. And what God does as a punishment for them, they worship the god of rain. What does God do? God sends a drought over the land. And he sends it through Elijah, the prophet. So Elijah brings this prophecy to Ahab. There's going to be a drought in the land. And then, so what happens is, is then Elijah runs away and goes into hiding because they're after the prophets. Elijah has to hide. He catches up with another prophet called Obadiah who's hidden some of God's prophets in a cave somewhere. And he says, I'm going to come back and speak to Ahab. And so this is the start of our story, verse 16 of Kings, 1 Kings 18. So it goes like this. If it doesn't come off the screen, that's okay. You can just listen to my dulcet tones. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said, is that you, the troubler of Israel? Because Elijah's brought this prophecy about drought. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent word through all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Well, he wasn't. There was a hundred hiding in a cave around the corner. Okay? But it's a bit of dramatic effect. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two balls for us. 
Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other ball and I will put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. So whenever it says Lord in your text, that's, the, that's, called, that's called the tetragrammaton, which is Y-H-W-H. It stands for Yahweh, okay? And, and, and Jews revere that name so much, it gets capitalized in our text as Lord. So this is God's name. I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all of the people said, what you say is good. It's interesting, they say nothing. Now they say, well, that's a good idea. Let's test God. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. And so they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. Surprise, surprise. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Now, the NIV reads this as busy, but in other texts it says, or going to the toilet. (laughs) Or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. These are all hilarious things to think about God. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until blood flowed. And then midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And so they came to him, and he repaired the altar to the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. What a stupid thing to do. Have you ever tried to light a fire by pouring water on it? Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. What's he doing? He ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. So you, you end up with this pile of wet wood and a moat around the outside of it. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. Have you ever seen a fire so hot it burns up stones and soil, and also licked up the water in the trench? (laughs) Imagine it. And when the people saw this, Of course they did. They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So, the start of this story. It's not just Ahab and Jezebel, but they have led the people so that their hearts are now wavering between two opinions. Oh, do we serve Baal or do we serve God? That's what's going on. We don't don't know. And at the start of this story, they're silent. They don't know what to say. 
And so Elijah provides this test, and they say, that sounds like a good idea. Let's see who really is God. Who's going to turn up? They will agree to this thing, don't they? But you know this question, this, this comment of this wavering between two opinions? This is, this is so similar to where we're at in our cultural moment as Christians in the West today. Do we serve the living God, or do we serve a version of our God that our culture wants us to serve? So our culture wants to create a God for us to worship. But we're called to make a decision between worshipping a God that is made by men or a God that is living. But the problem is as well, I think, that for too long, the church has built altars to the wrong gods. We've been in danger for such a long period of time of building altars we think are to the right gods, but they're not to the right God at all. I was... um, out in uh, Vancouver in January at a church called The Way, and their teaching pastor there said, too often the church has become parrots of culture instead of prophets to culture. Too often we parrot back to culture what culture says to us, rather than telling culture what God wants them to hear. This is, this is what we do as Christians. We live like this kind of half-hearted version of Christianity where we don't want to be seen as being offensive to people or we just want them to like us so we don't actually tell them what God says to them. We don't live the way that Jesus teaches us to live. We'd rather live the way of culture because we just want to fit in. Too often we've been parrots and not prophets. And you know this first version, this first altar that we see in this story is just a familiar altar to me. It's a familiar altar of worship that we often see in this day and age. This first altar is just filled with noise. It's noise. It's all noise. You know, empty religion, empty Christianity is a bit like noise. You can have a version of Christianity without Jesus. You can do good works. Jesus says, do good works. Okay, I'll do good works. I'll go and love my neighbor. You can love your neighbor, but not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can, you can have a version of Christianity that is just almost like a form of the kingdom. But it's without the king. You know, and it's like self-help or self-spirituality. And you know, this is no better than walking around a false altar shouting. It's not going to achieve anything. A kingdom without a king isn't a kingdom at all. And the problem is we can so often be giving ourselves over to that form of Christianity. Secondly, this altar is, is, is fueled by hype and phenomena. These, these prophets, false prophets, wander around this altar trying to hype up a scene, don't they? If they can just stir it up enough, something's going to happen, they think. This is why Elijah thinks it's hilarious. Maybe he's on the toilet, he says to them. You know, there's a danger that much of the modern worship music that we listen to at home mimics the hype and fervor of secular concerts. You go on YouTube, oh, wow, I wish church was like that every Sunday. The hype and fervor of it. Oh, I wish I was caught in a moment like that. And then you watch a... You know, I don't know, I'm going to give some Justin Bieber. You go on a Justin Bieber concert online, you think, oh, I wish church was like that. It creates a great atmosphere. But you know, there's a danger when worship music creates a great atmosphere but doesn't mention Jesus. That's a problem. That's a false altar. Lastly, we see this first altar, it's all skin deep and for show. Much of our pursuit of God that we've been taught through Christian self-help books has all been about how you can get better as a person. 
It's, it's navel-gazing, self-gratifying, and it's all about you and not about him. That's a form of an altar that is false. And the danger is we can end up just chasing experiences of God's power instead of chasing God's. And that's kind of like wanting an experience of a wedding but not really caring who the bride or bridegroom is, right? Oh, I just want to get married. I don't care who it's to. That's kind of like that. We can worship power but not the person. Oh, I just want the power. No, I want the person. So often our pursuit of God hasn't been God but what we want him to do for us. You know, if your prayer life is just fueled by prayers of God, I want you to do X, Y, and Z for me, you need to take a look at your prayer life. Because it's not real worship. It's a false altar. A.W. Tozer says that God being who he is must always be sought for himself, never as, a, never as a means towards something else. You know, if you want to build a real altar to God, you seek God for who he is, not what he can do for you. You know, seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be given to you as well, says Jesus. Just to prove that that's biblical. So what does it look like then? Not to build a false altar, but build an altar to the living gods. Well, I think Mo uh, Moses, <laughs> that's a bit earlier on in the Bible. Elijah demonstrates three things on the altar that he builds. First of all, he demonstrates faith. He places faith in knowing who God is knowing who the God is that he worships. He places 12 stones around this altar to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a reminder that God is the God of Israel, that he's chosen this people group. So he places these 12 stones around this altar as a way of remembering who God is, but also who the identity of the people are. And that's a faith, that's a faith aspect. So when we come to God, if we're going to build an altar to the living God in our hearts, we need to approach this with an understanding of our identity in Christ now, our understanding of our identity is God's sons and daughters, as I've said lots of times recently. That's a really important first step. And then secondly, he ex exudes this crazy faith. Let's pour loads of water on the altar. Let's just see what happens. Faith is always needed if you're going to build an altar to the presence of God in your life. Secondly, he demonstrates obedience. Firstly, he demonstrates obedience in repairing the altar. This altar has been damaged, has been left to rack and ruin by a generation who no longer seek God, but they seek Baal. I would say that there are people in the older generations in our church who have, who have built altars to the living God that those in my generation have neglected for far too long. And that it's time to repair the altar to the living God, walking in holiness before him. It's time to obey God. So that's the first thing. But secondly, you know, Elijah is obedient to God in this story. He says, I've done all you commanded me, verse 36. So we don't see it at the start of the story. God, we don't see a moment where we have like an aside moment and God speaks to Elijah and says, now I want you to build the altar like this. But we see it at the end. He's done everything that God's told him to do in building this altar. Elijah had a significant and important part to play in the story. You know, sometimes you wait for, things, for God to do things in your life that he's commanded you to do. You wait for God to do it, even though God's told you to do it. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Put to death, as it says in Colossians 3, things in you that aren't of Jesus. Sometimes we ask God to do the things that he's told us to do. You know, the disciples in Acts 2 wouldn't have encountered the Holy Spirit at Pentecost if they were disobedient to the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 
24 verse 49, wait, into, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. If they decided to be disobedient to the words of Jesus at that point in time, they would have just gone off and done their own thing, and they wouldn't have encountered Pentecost. But in order for them to encounter Pentecost, they had to be obedient to the words of Jesus. They had to be obedient and do what Jesus had told them to do. And lastly, we see sacrifice in this story. So we see time and preparation taken to rebuild this altar. But there's also an animal that is sacrificed on this altar. You know, Hebrews talks about Jesus becoming the perfect sacrifice, okay? So I don't want to justify animal sacrifice right now. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is that in order for there to be an altar built to the living God, you need to lay your life down before God. You need to lay your life down before him. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your true and proper act of worship. A guy I met in the States called Sam Gibson said that living sacrifices climb off the altar. Too often what we do is we try and escape the altar that we've made in our hearts to God. We have to keep climbing back on the altar before God and sacrificing ourselves again before him. So to summarise really everything that I've said, because I could have just shown you this quote in the first place thinking about it. God's holy fire only descends upon prepared, obedient and hungry hearts, says Wesley Duell. You might be sitting there going, "Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about this. Surely God does what he wants to do. Why make it difficult? Why would God make it difficult? Why would God make it difficult? God is never found accidentally. He's never found accidentally. God says in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The more you seek God, the more you will encounter him. And you know what? You can do all of these things and you might only get a little spark in your heart. Oh, I feel like I might have just encountered God. But the more you do them, the more you give your life over to sacrifice, obedience and faith, the work of the Spirit by God's grace, the more you do those things, the bigger your flame will become, the bigger the flame in your heart will become. As Paul writes to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. Fan into flame. Keep doing the things that you need to do. And in all this, we need to place ourselves in the way of God. I'm going to place myself in the way of Almighty God. No, you're not going to pass by me, Lord. I'm going to place myself in your way. I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to live my life in sacrifice to you. you know, and as you do that, God will, you will encounter God's presence more and more in your life. It's not about power. It's about presence. It's about the person of Jesus. It's about the person of the Holy Spirit leading you, guiding you, living in you, walking it with you, helping you to put to death the sins of the flesh. It's about having God near to you, being close to him, walking closely with the Lord. Albert Haas, who's a um, a Franciscan, I think, uh, Catholic priest, says that God is always trying to awaken a dormant soul and set it on fire. Maybe he's doing that with you this morning. God is always trying to awaken a dormant soul and set it on fire. So what might that look like to you? Well, first of all, maybe you need faith to believe that you will start encountering God. Maybe you need faith to step into a new habit of prayer this week. Maybe you just need to say, okay, I'm going to give some time over to this. Maybe you need obedience to do what Jesus says. 
Maybe you've come into church this morning and there is a sin in your life that you know that you are holding on to. And Jesus is telling you today that you need to hand it over and ask for repentance. And thirdly, maybe you just need to offer your body again as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, handing all of your heart and your life over to him. So how do we build an altar to God in our hearts? Well, we do that through faith, obedience and sacrifice. Um, I'm going to go back to this question in a minute. But let me just show you this. I found this really cool quote by Spurgeon. I've, ad- I've adapted it slightly. So everywhere it says church, it didn't say church, but it does now. Um, <laughs> what would it look like to be a church who live only for Christ and desire nothing but opportunities to promote his glory, spreading his truth for winning by power those whom Jesus has redeemed by his precious blood? We need to be red hot, white hot, glowing with intense heat whom we can't approach without feeling that your heart is growing warmer, who burn their way into position straight onto the desired work, a church like thunderbolts flung from Jehovah's hand, I love that, crashing through every opposing thing. If we were a church like this, the enemy wouldn't stand a chance. If we gave our hearts over to the pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom in our lives and in our hearts... The world around us would start to change, not because of us, but because of the power of the presence of God in us and through us. So I want to leave you with this thought. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. God is is inviting you. He's inviting you. He's calling you to choose him. He's calling you to choose him this morning. So I can invite you to stand with me. close our eyes for a minute and then we're going to start worshipping Father I pray right now across this room that if what I've said has resonated in the hearts and lives of the people gathered here today that right now by your spirit that you would speak to them I feel like some of you just need to say yes I'm going to follow Jesus Yes, I'm going to give my heart over to him. But, you know, don't do that lightly. (laughs) Don't do it lightly. Don't say, yeah, I'm going to give my heart over to Jesus lightly. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about following hard and pursuing God. So, Lord, I pray right now we're going to start worshipping in a minute. And it might be that God continues to speak to you about this as we're worshipping. I hope he does. But, Father, I pray right now, set this church ablaze. Lord, I don't want anything but you. I've got no no room for anything else in my heart but you. I just want you. I don't want your power. I want your presence. God, I want to be the person who walks into a room and and, and I want to be like those revivalists of the past where people just started weeping because they encountered the holiness of God because, Lord, you're in my life. Lord, I pray that we'd be a church like that. So, Lord, I pray right now, come upon this space, right now as we worship you, Jesus, that you might come and speak to us this morning. Come and reveal sin. Lord God, come and help us to walk in obedience and come and give us faith, we pray today. Amen.
let's worship, shall we?